morning. But Malachi chapter 3 is where we'll be tonight, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 6, and if you take notes, the title uh, is just simply this, He is coming, He is coming. Malachi 3, 1 through 6, let's read it and then have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump in together. It says this, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. And I will come near to you to judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against the false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Let's pray. God, we are grateful tonight again to be able to approach your word, having your spirit within us so that we can understand what it says. God, tonight as we continue in this letter of Malachi, as he's speaking to your people back many years ago, God, we understand there are things within it that are still relevant for us today. And God, I pray as, as we go through this passage tonight that our hearts would be challenged and changed, that we would be equipped to follow you more fully. God, I pray that, that you'd use this passage to do a great work in us that you know needs to be done. God, we thank you that, that you just don't leave us to figure the Christian life out for ourselves, through our own power and through our own strength, but God, you've given us your word and you've given us your spirit. And God, I pray that we would take advantage of these things and that we would seek to have your word applied rightly to our lives so that our lives would be a sweet-smelling savor to you. God, I, I pray tonight for the kids downstairs, as has already been prayed, that as your word goes forth, God, and they learn truths on their level, that those truths would be deeply implanted in their hearts, that they would take root, and that they would grow from this point on, God, understanding how much you love them and that Jesus is their Savior. God, we, we pray for those in our, our church family who are hurting. We think of Stephanie and um, the situation with her grandfather. God, I, I do pray that you would comfort her, comfort the family during this time. God, I pray for um, Shelly Hamilton and her husband passing away, one family who has had a great impact on many, many people. And God, we thank you that as he is passing, that um, he's got hope in his heart that he'll be with you. God, we thank you again for your kindness towards us. May we never take it for granted. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you remember, chapter 2 ended uh, really with the people asking a question. The verse says this, verse number 17, Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, Everyone that doeth evil is good and is in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or... 
where is the judgment of God? That question, where is the judgment of God, is really uh, asked uh, kind of in a, in a sarcastic tone or a sarcastic manner, thinking that, you know, God hasn't judged us yet, so what means he's going to judge us? What, what, what's to say that the rest of the Bible is actually going to come through true? And it reminded me again of what we read in Second Peter just a few months ago, uh, when Peter was writing to the believers, and the believers were being questioned about this idea of, of why are things continuing as they are? If God is real, if God is going to make good on his word, then why are things just continuing as they are? And I want to go back there and read the passage because I think it fits in well uh, with what we're going to talk about tonight. So before we get too far into Malachi, let's turn to Second Peter chapter 3. And I want to read starting in, in verse number 1 and uh, read down through verse number um, 14. It says, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. Understand, the things that are being written about in Malachi are being written about Jesus Christ, the one who was going to come, and the one who has come, and the one who we look to to wait uh, for his coming again. It says this in verse 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heaven and earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And so the question that was asked in Malachi's day is really the question that was being asked in Peter's day. And the question is basically this, if the Bible is true, uh, if God is coming, then why hasn't he come yet? Where's the proof that these things are really going to come to be. And both Malachi and Peter are writing with the same thing in mind, the second coming of Jesus Christ. This idea that he will come again and there will be judgment that falls and there will be a purifying work. And after that purifying work, there will be offerings of righteousness that are given that honor the Lord. And so as people were waiting in Malachi's day, in some sense, the reason they missed the first coming of Christ as he came as a baby was because he, didn't, he doesn't come in the way that was often prophesied about. And the thing about the, the writings of the prophets 
is that they often intertwine or mingle the first coming and the second coming. And so as you read in the prophecies about Christ as coming, sometimes you have to do a lot of legwork to figure out what is exactly being said because they're talking about the first time he comes and the second time he comes, and that's what Malachi does even in this writing here. And so while, while Jesus, we know, did come, and we know that many people rejected him, uh, Malachi and Peter both wrote uh, with confident assurance in their hearts that he would come again, and that there would be judgment, and that um, the word of God would prove to be true. And so as, as we get into this tonight, I wanted to go back to Second Peter to remind us that as these questions were being asked in Peter's day, they were also being asked in Malachi's day, but isn't it true that they're also being asked in our day? That if God is real, then, then where is he? Why is he allowing these things to go on? Why is he allowing these things to continue? And I think in some part that question is not just asked by non-believers, but it's asked by believers as well. That if God is real, then why is there so much hurt in the world? Why is why isn't everything made right again? And friend, we have hope that one day it will be made right again. But that wasn't God's purpose in sending Christ for the first time. That purpose was to send a sacrifice for sins. And we know that when Christ comes again, he will set all wrongs right and he will make all things new. And so as we read um, Malachi and as we understand the question that was asked at the end of chapter 2, and then as we get into uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4, really, Malachi goes on from this point to answer that question. And uh, Malachi 3 and 4 are likely the, the most well-known portions of the book. Um, there's a section in here on, on offerings and tithing, and if you want to hear a great song, just ask Gina and Kelly, and they'll send it to you. They sent it to me when we were starting the book of Malachi. Just a, a funny, funny song on the idea of tithes and offerings. Um, but, but a lot of people, that's really the only reason they know um, about Malachi is because uh, Malachi calls them out on robbing God of what God deserved of them, right? They, they were not giving um, the sacrifices or their offerings in the way that they should have been given. Malachi calls them out on that, and that's what most people know this book for. But there's a lot more in it that points us to the idea of the faithfulness of God. And so as we get into chapter 3, Malachi is going to reference a couple of people uh, one of them is going to be John the Baptist. That he's, he's prophesied about coming as uh, the one who would prepare the way of the Lord. And as we looked at the beginning of Mark, uh, we understand that we, we reference some of these prophecies about John the Baptist. And we understand that John the Baptist came as a pre-runner or a forerunner of who? Jesus Christ. That he came to prepare the way of the Lord. And so as I said a moment ago, this prophetic writing is, is really mingling together both the first and the second advent, or the first and the second comings of Christ. And sometimes we have to dig a little to understand what's being talked about when, but we can understand that in all of these writings, it's pointing us to this reality that Jesus is coming again. As we read these writings, it's important for us to remember that Malachi was not speaking his own message, but he was speaking on behalf of God. And so uh, some of the personal pronouns that are used in, in passages like this are not a reference to Malachi, but they're a reference to the one who is actually speaking, who is God, right? That, that he's reminding his, his people, uh, his children, that he was going to come again or send one to come again, and that would be the Messiah. But why, as we think about what we've seen in this letter, why in their stubbornness and in their rebellion, uh, why in their, their unlawful divorce of their wives and their mistreatment of, of their wives and the mistreatment of the office of the priests, why would they deserve 
Or why would God give them this prophetic letter telling them that that the Messiah was going to come? Why? Because he loved them. And isn't that what the book starts with? Behold, I have loved you. They questioned God's love. They questioned how God was working in their lives. But God loved them. To me, it points us back to this idea that God is always faithful. Even in our unfaithfulness, God is faithful. And so while God does call out judgment upon them, as we saw a few weeks ago, especially on the tribe of Levi, the priests, uh, those who were uh, acting as as go-betweens between the people and between God, God calls out judgment on them, but his desire in the judgment was to bring them back to where they needed to be. And friend, I don't think I can stress this enough in our lives as Christians. Anytime we face anything that could appear to be chastening of the Lord, it's not because he hates us, but it's because he loves us. Because he wants us to be in a right fellowship with him, in a walk with him that honors his name. So Malachi gets to write a hard letter. Malachi gets to write a letter that is filled with rebuke. Um, but honestly, if the people had a right heart, they wouldn't just see the rebuke. They'd see the love of God, that God was faithfully calling them back to himself, even in the midst of their stubbornness and in their rebellion. So he tells them he's coming, he's coming, and you need to be ready. Similar to how, how um, many of the parables talk about the second coming of Christ with the same tone, right? That that they need to be ready, you need to be prepared because he's going to come as a thief in the night. He's going to come when you're least expecting it. And so many people want to uh, put a calendar date on when Christ is coming and all of the teachings of the Bible would tell us to do just the opposite. Don't live with a calendar date, but live with the idea that he's coming. And so just live as a person that's prepared. Live as a person who's ready um, to, to uh, see him come again and then you'll find yourself in the right position. So verse 1 of chapter 3 begins with this word, behold. And what does that mean? Pay attention. Listen up. I need you to understand this. He actually says behold twice in this verse because he wants to get their attention. He wants them to understand that he is indeed coming again. Behold, he says, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Now we need to get something clear because when Malachi says the Lord whom ye seek, they weren't necessarily seeking the Lord with a pure heart, right? Their question was almost in pretense. That, oh, oh, he's coming, he's coming. Where is he? Where is he? Where, when, when's he going to show up? And so Malachi says, this Lord that you're talking about, you need to understand he is coming again. You need to prepare yourself for that day. So behold, the God of judgment is coming. Behold, the one who has given you these promises in his word and the writings in the past, he's coming. Behold, the one whom the prophets has, have spoken about for years and years and years as they look forward to the fulfillment of their prophecies, he is coming. And the first one that he speaks of here as coming is John the Baptist. He said, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. As we meet John the Baptist in the New Testament, we often say he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He came in a way that was 
was very different from the, the rest of the New Testament. He came like the prophets of the Old Testament, kind of rough around the edges, with, with a, a loud message to proclaim with great boldness. And uh, everything he did was according to what God called him to do, to prepare the way for people to receive the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And as he made his way wandering through the wilderness, his message wasn't one simply of, oh, God loves you just as you are, right? Just stay as you are and you'll be fine. His message was one of repentance. Repent and believe. Repent and believe that, that God is going to send his son. Repent and believe the message that the prophets have written about. Repent and believe and prepare yourselves to receive the Lord. Make his paths straight to prepare a heart uh, in the people that would be ready to receive the one who they have been looking forward to. And so the messenger will come. And after the messenger comes, we know the promised one will come. And Malachi, as he's writing here, is, is really dealing with both the first and the second advent of Christ, that he is going to come. And that's the purpose of John the Baptist in heralding this news of repentance, because Jesus came on the scene. When Jesus came on the scene, John turned all of his attention to the person of Christ. He says, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And John went from being the prominent one who was preaching to taking a second class role almost behind Christ almost in a support role, uh, still preaching faithfully, but it landed him in prison. And, and John himself got a little nervous, right? He sends his disciples to go see Jesus and ask the question, are you the one or do we wait for another? Because I, even John was probably confused because things weren't turning around as rapidly as maybe he thought they would. Jesus sends word through John's disciples back to John and says, I, I'm the one. Haven't the blind received their sight? Haven't the lame gotten up and walked, John? I am the one who is coming. And so all of these things would come true uh, in a few years, but they hadn't come true yet. But God was assuring and reassuring their hearts that he would make good on his word. And so John the Baptist would come, and then the messenger would come, and he's the messenger of the covenant. Um, this, this would be that he is the fulfillment of the old covenant and the institution of the new covenant. There was a huge change when Jesus came on the scene. The messenger would come into his temple. When Jesus walked into the temple in Jerusalem, that was a big deal. That was a fulfillment of prophecies that were given many times. And guess what? There's going to be another fulfillment of that. We have that to look forward to. And so Malachi wanted these people to prepare themselves because Christ was coming. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll understand that after Malachi writes, there's about 400 years of silence. That's a long time. That's a long time where God calls these people to be diligently, faithfully watching. But what does Peter tell us? That a day of the Lord is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as one day. And so God is not held to a timeline as we think that he is. But he is held to his promises, and his promises will always come true. The phrase that's mentioned here in this passage several times, the Lord of hosts, it's actually mentioned 25 times in the book of Malachi alone. 25 times. That Lord of hosts is a reminder to these people that the Lord who is speaking these words is the Lord who has everything at his disposal. 
He's the Lord who is, who is over all the angel army. He's the Lord who can make good on every one of his words. And this is God speaking of his own power, um, that, that this, this angelic, angelic host was under his control, that he has the power and ability to do what he wants when he wants. And it's interesting that this phrase, the Lord of hosts, especially in Malachi and in the other writings of the prophets, is often given when the people were doubting God. So why does he say it? He says, I'm the Lord of hosts. So they would come back to confidence in the one who was speaking to them, that he would make good on his word. Do you ever need to stop and remember that he's still the Lord of hosts? That he will make good on his word? That all of his promises will come true? So Malachi is, is writing in a, in a very strategic way as God was giving him this message. He's writing to give them a solemn reminder that the question that they asked in the end of chapter 2, though it was asked in jest, uh, would become proven to be true as Jesus would come the first time and as he would come the second time. As we talk about the messenger here, just by way of side note, uh, Malachi, the, the name Malachi can actually mean messenger. And so some think that, that it wasn't even, Malachi wasn't even a real man, but that God just used an angel to, to proclaim this message or write this book. Can't God do what he wants? So if, if Malachi's name means messenger, sure. Why can't God do that? Why can't God line those things up? He certainly can. But the messenger that it's really speaking of is the person of Jesus Christ, that he would come again, that he would uh, do what he promised he would do. And so as he, he gives us in verse number one, he says, behold, at the beginning, he says, behold, in the end, and his heart was to prepare these people for the day when Jesus would come. Now, some would say it's, it was a little bit cruel of God to give this message in this way because these people wouldn't have had an opportunity to see Jesus come the first time. But isn't that what living a life of faith is? That you take God at his word and you believe it's going to come true even if it doesn't come true in your lifetime. Isn't that what is, is proclaimed and highlighted about so many of the people in Hebrews 11? that they looked for a city who had, whose, whose builder and maker was God, something that they did not receive in this lifetime, but they would receive it in the future. So it's not cruel of God, but it's giving his, his people something to look forward to and hope, because isn't it true that if they believed, they would see Jesus one day face to face? And so whether they saw him in this life or they saw him in the life to come, they needed to be ready for that day and, and find themselves working in a way that would bring glory to him. Any thoughts on verse number one? Bruce. Yeah. But I don't think the Jews under Roman rule were looking at two Adams. No. They weren't thinking of the suffering Messiah from Isaiah. They were thinking of somebody who's going to come and defeat the Romans yeah. and put them back in power and give them back their land. You know, so it, it, to me, anyway, I think maybe there's a, another reason why they're saying, where is he? Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. That you know, they, they didn't um, have everything that we have today and um, but they were still called to be faithful, right? Be faithful to what you have been given and uh, we they were failing in that regard in that aspect. Anybody else? 
Any thoughts? All right, we'll move on to verses 2 and 3. He then asks a question. He says, behold, he's coming. The messenger's going to come. And the one who the messenger prepares the way for will come. And as we get into verses 2 and 3, the question is then asked, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And, we, when, and, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. And so as the question in chapter 2 and verse 17 was asked in a somewhat sarcastic way because nothing was changing, God was allowing all the things that had been going on to continue to go on. Verses 2 and 3 then ask another question, but this is a very serious question. When he comes, who is going to abide in that day? So this wouldn't necessarily, again, be talking about the first advent, but now we've moved to the second advent when Christ returns again when he comes again and then he says and who shall stand when he appears let's be honest in our natural state who's gonna who's gonna abide in the day of his coming and who's gonna uh, stand when he appears nobody why in our natural state nobody would be able to stand against these things because we're impure and what does the refiner's fire and the the fuller soap do it removes the impurities so things can be made pure so as we think about the idea of the refiner's fire, um, I don't know, anybody here make gold and silver, melting stuff down? and Probably not, right? Um, in that day, you know, that this would have been something that was more familiar to them. If you've ever watched any of the shows on the Discovery Channel, um, what are they? The, the gold, like Bering Sea Gold or Parker Schnabel. Come on, anybody know Parker Schnabel? Gold Rush, thank you. And they go, and they're in Alaska and all these different places, and they're mining for gold, and they'll take that gold, I think it's called a smelter, is that right? And they'll, they'll smelt that stuff down, and they, they scrape off the impurities that rise to the top, so they have what? A refined product at the end. You can't, you can't get paid for gold that's full of impurities. Why? Because it's not going to be of true value, because the weight is not going to be right. But when that refiner takes that gold or that silver and they heat it up till it's boiling, till it's liquid, and they, they scrape off the dross from the top of that thing, uh, as it goes through that process, it becomes much more valuable because the impurities are removed. The fuller soap is, is an, another idea of, of a, a cleansing process that would take place that would, would whiten fabrics that were not white. They, they would uh, wash these fabrics and, and so they would be perfectly pure, perfectly white. And, and the, the play on words, so to speak, is that, that nobody could stand in the presence of the coming of Christ in our natural state because we're all impure. Now, certainly as, as this is being written to them, um, we understand in the Old Testament they were saved by faith. Did it look a little different? It did, right? They were looking forward, we're looking back. That part of their faith, um, as, as we see in the life of Abraham, he followed God, he believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Uh, our, our faith is still evidenced by our works. It's a little different, but it's still the same, so to speak. But as Malachi is writing here, he's calling them to ask themselves the question, who shall abide in this day and who shall stand when he appears? Malachi is writing to remind them that God will refine them as they look to him faithfully, that there will be a day when they are refined fully, when they are cleansed fully. And the purpose of all of this is that God would then purge 
the sons of Levi to bring them back to a place of usefulness where they will, will again offer sacrifices in the years to come. If you, if you do much reading in end times, many believe Ezekiel, uh, I think it's in the 30s, 33 through 36, talks about future sacrifices that will be given by the sons of Levi in the millennial kingdom. That's when their sacrifices are going to be accepted by God again. Now, what are their sacrifices for? It's not for salvation. No sacrifice that man-made could ever provide salvation, but it would be similar to our observance of the Lord's Supper. Why do we do that? In remembrance. To set up a, a day of remembrance for what God has done. So they ask the question, where's the God of justice? Where's the God of judgment? Uh, and Malachi says he's coming and you need to, be, need to be prepared and you need to be prepared in the way that he desires you to be prepared. And as we think about this idea of judgment coming here as he's speaking to the sons of Levi, um, isn't it Peter that reminds us that if judgment's going to begin, it must begin where? In the house of God. For those of us who are now priests, to God. We've been made priests to God, and so judgment begins with us, that he would refine us, that he would purify us, and ultimately we understand that we are purified by the person of Jesus Christ and our faith in his completed work on the cross. And so Malachi's question to them should have caused them to stop and think. It should have caused them to examine their lives, to see if they were living in a manner um, that would please God or if they were living in a manner that pleased themselves. If you remember, Back in chapter 2, I believe, I didn't look it up, sorry, um, what was the, who was the curse called out upon? The sons of Levi. That their generation, the generations that came after them would be cursed. And, and what's the promise now? That the fuller's soap and the refiner's fire is going to purify them. Why? So that the, the inheritance or the, the ones who come after the sons of Levi could offer sacrifices to the Lord again and these sacrifices would be offered in righteousness. And what does that remind us of the sacrifices they had been offering, that they weren't offered in righteousness? As we said back in looking at that passage, they were offered out of convenience. They were offered out of um, obligation in some regard. Uh, they were doing what was easy instead of what was right. And so God is calling them back. And again, this points us to this idea of the faithfulness of God. Any thoughts on verses 2 and 3? Are you thankful that one day um, we will be able to stand in the presence of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus? I think we're still going to fall down, right? We're still going to fall down and worship at his feet, um, but we can stand in his presence because Christ has refined us, because Christ has purified us, because he has made us as, as uh, children of God. And what a glorious thought that is. Anybody at all? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's right. Definitely. Verse 4, um, continuing on, it says, Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. If you think back through uh, the nation of Israel's history, um, who was it that established the sacrificial offerings? It's a simple answer. Who, is, who has had his goings forth in heaven from, for, forever? 
God. God established them, right? God is the one who said, this is the way that I want to relate with you, and this is the way that I want you to relate to me. I'm the one who's going to establish these offerings and these sacrifices for the purpose of, of our relationship being restored in some sense. Now, did the sacrifices ever take away sins? No. Hebrews tells us that. All these sacrifices that were performed for years and years and years never took away sins. But what did it show? It showed obedient faith on behalf of the people that they believed the word of God was true. And what was that to God? So often as, as you read about the sacrifices being given, they were a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. They were pleasing to him because, they saw, because he saw the obedient faith in them. And so Malachi reminds them that at one point, your offerings were pleasant to the Lord, and one day your offerings will be pleasant to the Lord again, but right now, guess what, people? Your offerings have not been pleasing to God. Because again, as we just talked about, you were doing them in your own way, through your own power, with your own guidelines or statutes or, or limitations, and, and you haven't been doing them in the way that God desires for them to be. The reference in Ezekiel is 43 through 46, talking about the future sacrifices uh, that some believe will happen in the millennial kingdom. You can look at that on, in your own time. But Malachi is encouraging them that just because they found themselves in a situation where God wasn't pleased in the present, it doesn't mean that God wouldn't be pleased with them again. And isn't that encouraging to you? That when you find yourself in a, in a place of sin, that just because you're sinning now doesn't mean that that sin has to mark you for the rest of your lives that God is gracious, and God was gracious to them in, in offering them this, this route of, of getting back on the right track, and he does that to us as well. And so after they go through this time of, of refining, then their offerings would be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Getting into verse number five, he says, and I will come near to you to judgment. This, this is a reference that could be um, in the, the very present time as they were living as people in that day. This also has future implications as we think of a judgment that's coming. But why does he say he's going to come? He's going to come to judge, and he's also going to be the swift witness. Now, can the judge and the witness often be the same person? No. But when can they be? When you're God. <laughs> when you're the one who rules and reigns supremely over everything. So he says, I'm going to come to you in judgment, and I will be a swift witness. And who's he going to be a swift witness against? Against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against the false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, against the widow and the fatherless, against those that turn aside the stranger from his right. Now, we could start at the beginning of this list and think, well, we'll probably escape judgment then because I'm not a sorcerer. Anybody in here a sorcerer? We good? I think we're good. But it doesn't take us very long to get into the list to find out that it still applies to us. That there's, there's things in here that each one of us would have been guilty of just as, as they were. So against the adulterers would have been talking about um, the, the ones that we spoke of last time as uh, the people of the, of God were, were divorcing their wives unjustly in the way that they were treating their women 
um, that they were married to, God had no pleasure in that. He, he, he was against it from the very beginning. They were doing things in their own way, and God said, enough's enough. But it wasn't just against the sorcerers and the adulterers, but it was also against the false swearers. What does that mean? Anybody who made an oath and didn't keep it. Anybody who, who claimed the name of God but didn't live in the way that God wanted them to live. That's, that's the whole premise behind taking the name of God in vain, right? As we said a while ago, it's not just a swear word. It's when we claim that we are who we want to be and then we live in a way that wouldn't hold true to his name. That would be all of us. Against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, this would be certainly talking about those who would have servants or those working under them and the mistreatment or abuse in, in the way that they were treating those that worked under them? How about in the, the neglect of the widows? Wasn't that one of the complaints in the early church? That the, the, the elders then chose what? Seven men who would serve with them to serve as deacons. Why? Because the elders couldn't do it all. They, they couldn't faithfully minister the word of God and feed, serve t- tables, right? That's where that word deacon comes from, the idea of a servant. So they chose seven men who would serve as, as deacons and serve those widows. And he talks about the fatherless, the orphan. What's, what's our treatment like of, of those who have no father? And then he, he makes it very broad and says, and those that turn aside the stranger from his right hand, that those who, who mistreat those that you don't even know. And, and what's the basis on all of this sinful activity? What's the basis on all of this, this wickedness that God was calling out? And it's, it's interesting that the things that God is calling wicked here, the things that he's coming to judge them for, are things that we would look over very casually, oftentimes just for the simple sake of being busy. But what does God say? All of this stems from this idea of not fearing him. You're, you're acting this way, you're doing these things because you don't have a proper fear of me, a proper reverence of me, a proper respect of me. And then what does he say at the end of verse number five? Remember who's speaking the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. So maybe their question was, can God really judge us for all this? How, how is God going to judge us for all this? Well, remember who's talking to you. It's the Lord of hosts. And any promise he makes, he will make good on. And any word he says will come to pass. And so as, as Malachi is calling them out here, he wants them to understand that judgment is coming, that God will be a swift witness against them. And if, if that's the case, then they will be found guilty. Why? Because there's no escaping God's judgment. God sees and knows everything that is within us. And that's why Jesus in the New Testament says, if any man looks at a woman and lusts after her in his heart, what is he? An adulterer. He knows everything. And so in the day of judgment, if it wasn't for Christ, we would not stand. And so all of this is being given to call them back, to remind them of the faithfulness of God, to remind them of this reality that God reigns supremely over everything. He sees what's going on, even the sins that they thought were being done in the quietness of their hearts, even the things that that everybody else had come to accept as normal life. God says, these are the things that I'm going to judge you for. And I'll be a swift witness against you. And remember, the one who's speaking is indeed the Lord of hosts. But why was all this written? To have them abandon the things they were doing and come back to the one true God. Any thoughts on verse number five? Bruce. I just love this verse. And uh, once again, uh, Malachi and James, to me, speak with yeah. similar heart. Uh, James 1.27, a pure religion, undefiled before God the Father. 
right? <laughs> Um, who does God put the primary responsibility on when it comes to, um, I was going to say old people, but that's not very nice, the aged people and the fatherless, the church, the church. Um, and isn't it unfortunate that even the church has come to rely on a, a state system to do what we have been called to do? I'm not saying I know the, the fix for it because there's a lot of kids in our world who are fatherless and orphaned. Uh, but I would ask us, uh, and I ask myself this, am I doing my part when it comes to these things? And that doesn't necessarily mean that all of us have to go adopt every child in Franklin and Chittenden County. I mean, that's one way to grow the church. If you guys are up for it, I'm up for it as well. Um, but I do think we have to consider what, what are we doing in regards to that idea of the fatherless and, and with that uh, idea of those who find themselves who are true widows. Um, ultimately, the, the responsibility for a widow is first her family, um, that they would step up and meet the needs. Um, but after that, it goes to the church. And so the big responsibility there. Anybody else? Any thoughts? That's why we run a church van for you. <laughs> yeah, right. Care Taking care of them. Yeah, be a mentor, right? Be, be somebody that steps into those kids' lives. Yes, Heidi. Yeah. I, th I think, well, from, from the church's standpoint, you know, when it talks about taking care of the widow and the orphan, orphan those would, would have been written to local Christians who were in those local churches who were neglecting the care of their own family. Um, but I, I think we can still have a ministry to those who are not saved, if that makes sense. That we could have a ministry outside of our, our church to help those who find themselves in need. But the, the widows indeed that the church was obligated to right. care of. They had a, not only in the church, but they had a good testimony yeah. in the church. They washed the servant's feet. They right. were faithful to the Lord. And yeah. Needed to care. Yep. Anybody else? All right. Last verse. He says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Why would God remind them that he does not change? Sometimes that's the only proof we have. Sure. Yeah. Amen. Anybody else? Why would God remind them that he does not change? What had they seen in their history? How many times had God come, come, come faithfully to them in their time of desperate need? How many times did God make good on his promises, whether it was um, uh, getting them to the promised land, providing for their needs in the wilderness journey? Um, how many times did God prove himself faithful? Every time. Every single time. 
And so sometimes we could take this verse and say, God's not going to change from his judgment. Therefore, they better be ready. But, but what does he say? I, I'm the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. If I had changed, if, if God was able to change in his heart towards these people, when would they have been consumed? The first time they sinned. How does this verse apply to us? Behold, I'm, I'm the Lord, I change not. If we could lose our salvation, how many times would we lose it? Every time we sinned. But who holds the promise in his hand? God does. And so because of his faithfulness, we're not consumed. Because of his faithfulness, we're, we are, are, are reaping benefits that we don't even know. And they didn't understand the benefits that God had poured into their lives up until this point. They were taking advantage of God. They were saying, God, God doesn't seem to care how we offer the sacrifice. God doesn't seem to care if we go this way or that way. So we're just going to do it. And, and God's unchanging nature kept him from being that all-consuming fire that would destroy them, and instead he gave them opportunity to come back, and it just points us to this truth of the faithfulness of God. I am the Lord. I change not. And because I change not, you're not consumed. Why do many people think they're not consumed? Because they've been pretty good people. That's not true. We're not consumed because we're... We're not not consumed because we're pretty good people. We're not consumed because... God is slow to wrath because he's faithful in our faithlessness, um, because he always keeps his word. And so as we think about this passage, uh, verses 1 through 6, uh, there's certainly a lot in it as, as we talk about the promise of, of a coming Messiah, both in the first and the second advent, that's a lot to look at, a lot to look forward to things in this that they didn't understand. But isn't that proved true about every prophecy, that they prophesied about things that they did not fully understand? But that wasn't the prophet's job to understand the message in completion, right? Their job was to proclaim the truth and let God do his work so that years later people could look back and see that in all of history God was making a promise that his son would come and that he would um, die as a sacrifice for sins and that he would... Um, he would eventually make all wrongs right. And so as, as we think through this passage, we, we think of the promises of God that came true for them, but we also think of the promises of God that have come true for us. And as you dwell on the promises of God that have come true in your life, what does that give you within yourself? A desire to be faithful. Why? Because God is faithful. And don't we want to be faithful to the one who has been faithful to us? Don't, don't we want to keep his word and uphold his truths, and do what he has called us to do until he calls us home. He says, I, I am the Lord, and I change not. Therefore, you are not consumed. And because God is faithful, and because he always keeps his promises, we as his children should rejoice greatly, because God is good. Any thoughts? 656. Anybody at all? All right. You had your opportunity. Speak now or forever hold your peace, like at a wedding, right? We don't say that anymore. It's probably a good thing. Um, but let's have a word of prayer, and we'll, we'll let you get on your way. God, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you, God, that you are so faithful, that you do keep your promises, that you do make good uh, on the words that you have spoken. God, we thank you that you are the Lord of hosts. We thank you that, that though we don't often understand what you're doing, God, you always know what you're doing. 
God, we thank you that in the times that we have deserved to be consumed by an all-consuming fire, God, you have shown us mercy and grace. And God, I pray as we look back on the mercy and grace that you have shown us, that we would then strive to consistently and continually walk faithful lives through the power of your spirit that would bring you glory. God, we, we don't offer sacrifices anymore, but we do understand this, that our lives are to be a sacrifice of praise to you. And God, I, I pray that as we live, it would be a sweet-smelling savor to you, that you would see the fruit of our lives and, and you would take great joy in knowing that we are the rescued and redeemed that you sent your son for. God, help us to take serious your word. I do pray that if I have said anything tonight that should not have been spoken, God, that you would quickly erase that from people's minds and that we would just meditate on what your word has to say so that our lives could bring glory to your name. God, use your word. Use it in a way that changes us into the image of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.